The topic of intellectual property is an excellent example of where the worlds of secular law and halacha collide. It's actually a great, one of the best examples of it. There are reams of uh, law books that are written on, and articles written on the topic of intellectual property and secular law, right? Uh, it has even some discipline, I think. Like, there's, that's a lot of people specialize in that. Um, and especially now, it's, 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 sort of, it's you know, extraordinarily important with the way it's so easy to steal ideas and steal music or, over the internet and steal all kinds of things. It's become more and more important and more and more on the forefront. And uh, someone just told me, um, uh, Mr. Langer, Mr. Langer's father, Mr. Langer's father, just told me that uh, it's mentioned in the Constitution, the right for, of intellectual property. That's how important it was, of a concept it is. And many different legal innovations were created in order to protect um, intellectual property, like the whole concept of digital licensing was something that was just a, kind of a loophole to get around the problem of stopping other people from using software that you bought uh, and just disseminating it. Now, the fascinating thing, and this is really strange, is that in halacha, in halacha, there's no mention of it, almost. In other words, in all classic sources, there's no Gemara, no Mishnah about the concept of intellectual property, um, no mention in the Rishonim about it, none of the classic Paiskim talk about it, there's no Rush, there's no Rift, there's no Rambam, there's nothing. Uh, it's not a Shulchan Aruch at all. You won't find a mention of the concept of, of in, actually when I say Shulchan Aruch, I mean Mechaber and Ramah, nothing. Nothing of intellectual property. And you think, how could a thing like that have not been addressed? I mean, this is something that must have come up, as we'll see, it, it did come up, many times over. So, like, how could it be totally not addressed, not in the Gemara, not at all? And uh, the first time in history it's truly addressed is a tshuva that the Ramah wrote. So it's in tshuva Ramah. The Ramah wrote a tshuva sefer, it's in Semen Yud. And that's the first historical evidence that we have of the, uh, the ever being a din taira about intellectual property. Um, but otherwise, not. And it's a, it's a mystery. Right, I mean, the Ramah wrote this tshuva in the year 1550. That's a lot, of, hundreds of years where people could have been fighting and slugging it out over intellectual property issues and inventions and creations and art and music and authoring books and plagiarism and, and had no mention, nothing, nobody, everybody. The Rajv also wrote thousands of tshuvas. It's just very strange. It's, a little, it's somewhat of a puzzle. But in any case, uh, going back to secular law for a minute, so the, the nature... It's very, intellectual property by definition is kind of vague because it isn't really a property, <laughs> right? When something is a house, a pen, a car, an animal, you own it. So it's very straightforward. You own it and we can dictate what you want to do with it. Intellectual property is essentially what we would call a Dabrashem B'mamish, right? It's not, not a thing. Um, and as a result, in, even in secular law, there's all kinds of strange lawsuits. I was reading about, I don't know if you ever heard about this, but there was, a, um, there was this Brit British photographer named David Slater, um, and he was studying, uh, he was studying monkeys in Indonesia. And he dropped his camera, and the monkeys picked it up and took a selfie. They took a couple of selfies, and they were actually very good. I saw them because they're very good selfies. They were smiling. It was funny. Uh, so he pu he published it. He sold it to a couple of newspapers, and then a website picked up the picture, and they they published it. And he asked them to take it down, and they said it's not yours. It's the monkeys. <laughs> and they went to court, and the court supported that. Uh, then he was sued by PETA for using monkey property. <laughs> and they went to court. 
They actually went to court, and then that was thrown out of court because they were abusing what their organization stands for. But uh, in any case, that is the nature of what, what intellectual property is like. It's being, it's like so unclear. It's uh, it's it's at least this kind of thing. Now, in uh, in secular law, there are two distinct kinds of intellectual property, and actually. It turns out that in halacha, you really have to divide this up into two sugis, and that's what we're going to do also. We're going to have to divide it up into two separate shiurim. There's patents, and there's copyrights, and they're very, very different. And the question is why they're so different, uh, even in secular law. You have to know what the lum this is, why they're so different. But they are, they are very different, and they're, in, in halacha, you have, to, you have to address those two questions very, very differently. Um, a copyright law is the simpler one. A copyright law protects um, artists, authors, musicians, right? When you ever do, you make up an original work, you make an original work of art, an original book, uh, article, anything, you're protected by copyright. Copyright laws are automatic. You don't have to register to get a copyright. You, you automatically have a copyright. If you don't register, you're going to have a very hard time proving it, and you're going to have a hard time winning the court case. But it's, uh, it, it, is, it is something that's automatic. It's very cheap to register for a copyright. You just $65, uh, and you get your copyright. And it seems that the poor man's copyright doesn't work. So in case anybody was thinking it does, you know, with the mail, the post stamp envelope, okay, whatever. Anyway, if you were thinking of doing that, that doesn't work. Just make the phone call and uh, register a regular copyright, and then you're protected. Think software also. What? Think software as well. Software is also copyrighted? Okay, we'll get to that. Now, um, music obviously is, is protected as well, and one of the most famous copyright lawsuits of recent history was Napster. Do you remember Napster? Right, so Napster was this uh, file sharing thing that uh, someone, a young kid, came up with, and, and basically every single person in the music industry sued him, and after a year was taken down. Right, so that was, that was copyright law. That was basic copyright law. And copyright law, first of all, it, it's automatic. You just have to register, and it belongs to you for something like 95 years. Uh, so your great-grandchildren can, can still get royalties from music that you've composed. That's, so both it belongs to you automatically and you have it for a very, very long period. And it could be you could even renew it. I didn't I go into all the details, but you, you have it automatically for a long time. Now, a patent is a very different kind of intellectual property. Essentially, uh, from an intellectual property standpoint, there shouldn't really be any difference. I mean, you created an invention, the invention was yours, you created music, music is yours, but no, they're different. A patent, if you want a patent on an invention, if you want a patent on, a, uh, on any creation of yours, that you need to pay a lot of money for, which means limited. even if that's what? It's more limited duration, right? Much more limited, right. The whole thing is different. If you, don't, if you don't apply for a patent and you're not awarded a patent, you have absolutely no protection. We don't care that you came up with it first. You could come up with it 10 years before the other guy. If the other guy applied for the patent, he gets it. You don't. You have no, absolutely no protection. Um, a patent is a minimal thousand, thousand or thousands dollars, even if you don't even employ a lawyer. And if you don't employ a lawyer, you're not getting the patent. So that's what seems like push it. So, the, so it's a, it ends up being tens of thousands of dollars, at least, to get a patent. And a patent, after all that, is only for 20 years at most. Right, and uh, certain organiza- uh, corporations maybe could have more, and so on and so forth. But essentially, it's a very short duration where you're protected, then you can get the benefits of your invention. So that's the difference between a patent and a copyright. And uh, pharmaceuticals, right? Sorry, pharmaceuticals saying it's a patent, right? Same thing. And the problem with patents, also, should you ever be thinking of getting a patent, the problem with patents is that. It's very nice to have a patent, but I saw Bill Gates supposedly said that uh, intellectual property has a shelf life of banana, 
In other words, people will violate your patent, and unless you have very deep pockets, you're not, your patent's not going to be worth anything. So you can spend $10,000 getting your patent, but you have to be ready to spend $100,000 defending your patent. So unless you're a big uh, corporation, getting a patent is not really such a practical thing. There are some very famous lawsuits and patents as well. Apple, uh, I didn't even know this, Apple sued Google for the Androids. They, they, they thought that was a takeoff of iPhone. No one knows exactly what happened to that who won that lawsuit, if it was one, but everybody knows that the lawyers made a lot of money. <laughs> That's very clear. That it was going on for a long time. Uh, um, um, Microsoft, um, Apple also sued Microsoft uh, when they came out with Windows, because they thought it was taken off of their, their old operating system, and so on and so forth. Now, from a halachic perspective, this is where it gets very interesting. From a halachic perspective, Essentially, there should be no difference between a copyright and a patent, meaning to say that if we're going to determine that intellectual property belongs to you, which means that something that you made up is by definition yours, and when we say by definition yours, that means it has a few different um, applications. Number one, you can charge money for it, and if someone else makes money from it, that money goes to you. Plus, the additional question is, can you stop someone else from doing something with it? Like, can I say, no, you can't listen to it. Uh, you can't use it. You can't use my information, right? So if we're going to assume that intellectual property does belong to you, then all intellectual property is the same. Uh, an invention is no different than music. Artwork is no different than uh, any kind of design that you've come up with. It's all going to be exactly the same. No difference. But there actually is two very distinct sugyas because patent, the sugya of patents which is the concept, what, what is, what's the lambdas of a patent? Why is it that there's a difference in law between a patent and a copyright? Right? The patent is not like the concept of copyright. In other words, apparently secular law understands that an author, an artist, owns his music, owns his book, owns his article. A creator of an invention does not own his, his uh, invention, but we award him a patent to protect inventors so as to encourage them to invent, to encourage them to invest the money it takes to, uh, to innovate and to create a new medicine or create a new invention, to create a new system, and allow them to recoup their, recoup their, their investment and make their money back so we give them 20 years. So it's a Takanas it's a, it's a uh, society, essentially. It doesn't really belong to you, right? Secular law somehow understands that when you invent something, it doesn't bad some belong to you, but we're just protecting you for the sake of the business that you've, uh, you've, you've invested. And in halacha, those are two different sugis. Again, in halacha, were we to say that intellectual property belongs to you, then all intellectual property belongs to you. However, even if we say intellectual property doesn't belong to you, so there's no such thing as a copyright, but there's still a sugi of patent, and that's the sugi we're going to address first, because that's the first one in, historically that was addressed, uh, which is that there's a concept that halacha protects your business. If you invested a lot of money in creating something, and you invested a lot of money developing a product, and you invested a lot of money, all different forms of creating a business, and you innovated it, uh, halacha does protect you. And it's a whole different sugya. There's a, that, and that was the first sugya to be, ever be addressed. That was 1550. That was what the Ramah was talking about. And he did not address at all whether intellectual property uh, belongs to you. And that was not addressed until 300 years later in the 1850s, first time in history <laughs> that a Jewish book talked about whether you own uh, intellectual property, if you own music. The first Sefer that handled it was in the Chuba Sefer in 1850. Again, I thought it was mind-boggling that like, no one <laughs> talked about it before that. Like, it's a very basic question. Go ahead. Does Halacha look at uh, like, whether it's for the public good? Like, there's a lot of talk about like, yeah. COVID vaccines should have been you know, expanded to make them, you know. So in, in Halacha, the way that's, defini that's, that's a, um, approached is regarding Tyra. 
right? In other words, when, when we're talking intellectual property when it comes to Tyra, that becomes a discussion. What do you mean? We want Tyra to be available for everybody. We don't want someone to be tight-fisted on Tyra that he's created, Tyra he's produced. That's where, that's where that comes up. Not in terms of a vaccine, but the, the concept is not different. It's the, that, that's where you find that, that, that concept. Um, which also we'll see if we have time. We'll get to it tonight. So we'll see that in this, in this particular case, it wasn't a simple copyright question. There was aspects of copyright, but it was a bigger question. So yeah, it wasn't didn't necessarily have to address that that part of it. Um, what about just the fact that it wasn't addressed? Does that seem to imply that it doesn't exist? But you know what? You would think that. Even let's say it doesn't exist, so then someone should say it doesn't exist, right? And what I mean is that there must have been lawsuits about it. There must have been DNA terror about it, right? People must have fought about it. Well, see, this case that we're about, to, the historical case of the Ramah, was, was a huge controversy. It made a huge, had huge ramifications and repercussions, um, that fight, that, that, that he was called on to uh, educate. So anyway, so, so uh, this really, when we're talking copyrights, Copyrights is a complicated discussion because there's three, three things you have to talk about in copyright. This, re this really applies to software and to books and all, all, all things that are covered by a copyright or a trademark. Um, first of all, this question has to be decided. Do you, can you own data? Can you own a Dover Shein by Mamish? Can you own something simply because you came up with it? Is it possible to have own, own ownership of such a thing? And then the second question is, what does that ownership mean? Right? Ownership could mean you know, that I have the right to charge money for it. I have the right, if someone else sells it, I can get that money. Uh, like, for example, the Chafetz Chaim, uh, at, in his Savas, you know, he wrote many, many Sfarim, Chafetz Chaim, but his most famous ones was the Mishra Brura and uh, the Chafetz Chaim, and he, he the Mr. Brewer, I believe, and Chafetz Chaim, he left for his wife, that she should benefit from the proceeds, but all others, Svarim, he allowed anybody to, pr to print, he was Mafkir Lakal, with the Tanai, the condition that they give 4% of the proceeds to Abbas Madrish. So he made all kinds of conditional rules what to do with his intellectual property, right? So that means he assumed that he has the ownership of it and he has the right to prevent anybody else from printing the Mishabrura. It's the property of the Chavetz Chaim's family. And the other Svarim, he also gave it with the Tanai that you have to, um, uh, you ha you have to give some portion to the proceeds of this match. That's one question. And the next question is, okay, fine, so let's assume that financially it makes sense, you know, that, that you have that kind of ownership. Then the question is, can I say, okay, I don't want you to use this for that. Like, for example, in Art Scroll, right, every Art Scroll book, right, you have this line. No part of this book may be reproduced in any form, photocopying or computer retrieval systems, even for personal use, without per written permission from the copyright holder, uh, except by a reviewer, this is a lot of these words are big and bolded. <laughs> well, and they're very macabre. And they say even for personal use, right? That means they sold you a book. It's yours. You paid for it. You can burn it if you want. You can shred it if you want. But if you want to photocopy it, you can't do that. Now, what kind of possible din right could they have to do that? What 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 ownership could they have to prevent you from photocopying a book and a, a page of a book that you own? So that's a intellectual property that goes beyond a sale. Right? And that's the question is what, how does that work? Now, in, 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 in uh, software, they made this licensing concept. Go ahead. So isn't there also a concept of fair use that you are allowed to do some limited use? For example, if you were to print an article and you want to take a paragraph from a book, you can cite it in your article. Right. So does that have any relevance? So again, it'll be relevant to, you have to first determine what kind of ownership or bias I have and 
if I am a bailam, like in my house, I can say whatever I want, right? I say, don't come in. I can say, once you come in, I can say, get out. I can say, you could do this in my house, and you can't do that in my house, right? My own house, my rules, my house, my castle. But here is what's strange is that I sold it, so it's yours. And you really could do with it what you want, but I still somehow retain the ability to tell you, but this you can't do. And that's the question, how do I have the ability to do that? Now, there's, is that a tonight in sale? Uh, so there's one typical way of doing this kind of thing would be a tonight, right? So tonight is a condition. Now, a condition, though, always works that if the condition is violated, the sale is negated. If the sale is negated, you've got to give me my money back. I have to give you your book back. You have to give me your money back. Now, Oscar's not getting this farm back. They don't want this farm back. They certainly don't want to give you your money back. <laughs> so, so that's not what it is. So it's not a tonight. It could be a shear. A shear means that you kind of rest- restrict the sale. You don't sell it totally. And they retain a little bit of the ownership in everything they sell. Go ahead. Is there a differentiation legally where you'll have a selling of the item versus selling a license to use the item and so that way they can retain that element of control? Right. So I think that legally they came up with that concept of licensing because if you sell it there is no way, I believe, legally that you can retain control. So they would, but they would have to say so. Like on software it never says that they're selling it to you. They say they're licensing it to you. Um, Artscroll sells books. They don't license books, as far as I know, right? They never, they never clarify that. So that's something that we're going to have to figure out. How do you do that? What mechanism is there, both halakhically and legally? Because in the English, it's interesting. In the English books, it doesn't say this. But in the Svarim, it says that this is asr al-pi chayk al-pi dentaira. It's asr according to international law and according to halakha. So, okay, they make a, now there they make a claim that the dentaira does prohibit it. So we'll have to figure out, is that true or not? anyone who's actually mocked not to make copies of art school? Yeah, uh, depending, you know, I get calls often about that. Um, I, I say call them, and usually they're okay about it, but they are very clear that it's right, very right. specific what they don't want you to do. They don't want you photocopying it, right. you know, even for personal use. <laughs> if you, <laughs> you know? call them, they will say it's okay? Depends what you ask them to do. I mean, if you, let's say, are teaching and you want to give it out to your class, they will not be forthcoming about it. They'll say, get your school to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah, they're, 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 they're tight-fisted about it, I'm telling you. It's interesting because a lot of what they do isn't theirs to sell anyway. It's like non-profit, a, you mean? No, the Gemara. Uh, the they're they're reusing a lot of open so they, source intellectual it, property. It's, it's, it's not the layout also. No, but it's true. Uh, yeah, the, the, the layout. They they clarify what they're protecting. Right, so the, over the layout there. is the thing that they're. The layout, the font, the this, the that, the typography, everything is written out there. The yeah. So, oh, very good. That was it. So that's question number one is, do you have ownership? Question two is, what does that ownership entitle you to? And question number three is, how does Dina Damachusadina play into this? Which is a great question. Dina Damachusadina, the secular law, definitely has uh, reams and reams of, of laws and, uh, you know, that, that dictate it. But here's the, this, it's a very, actually a very great question in Dina Damachusadina because Dina Damachusadina means that the, 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 the law of the land has power. Right now, what grants it that power? That's a machlokes rishanim. Um, it's not, according to no rishon, is the power of secular law intrinsic. Meaning to say, they can't give you a mitzvah. Um, they, the, the, the secular law can't say, okay, today everybody has to wake up at six o'clock in the morning, and now you have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. Um, I notice I'm not using masks as an example, <laughs> but uh, well, it was, uh, that would have been an easy example, but something like that. They can't give you a mitzvah. What they could do is they can fine you if you don't, because they have a right to your money. 
They have a right to use your money, they have a right to take away your money, they have a right to dictate what happens to your money, and that the Rishonim explain why. So that's the extent of their power, right? So they, they have such a power. Now, now here is the interesting thing, is that even if we give um, the secular law, we give it a, a power, but it can't be more than halacha. It could just have the same power as halacha. So now, if intellectual property, halacha can't make it belong to you, because it's a double shame of it can't possibly belong to you, so then it's hard to understand that Dina Al-Khuzudina will, will be able to do that, because Dina al can't do more than halacha. It can do whatever halacha can do. They can make up their own halachas and, and then enforce it, and it can enforce whatever halacha can enforce. But it can't do something that halacha, by definition, can't do, right, because it's not something you can own, so then that would be a very interesting argument. Why would it be that Dinul Chuzudi could But this is something we'll have to discuss as well. Again, this is all falls under the general concept of copyrights. So in, uh, in summary, again, classic sources mainly enjoy, uh, ignore this whole topic. And uh, the question is, do you own it? What could you do with that ownership? How does it play along with Dina Machosadina? And we're going to have to divide this into two separate children. One is going to be patents, which is protecting business. And the other is uh, the concept of copyright. Do you own something or do you not own something? Now, let's, work with, let's talk about the first historic precedent, and then we'll start seeing some of the Uh the, Really, you know, I could give just a share on just the history of this, because it's so fascinating. There's, there's tons just written about what happened. Um, so there, there was a, a Gadladar uh, in the time of the Ramah whose name was the Maram Padava. His name was Mayor Kathanelabogan. He was a Talmud of the Maram Mintz. These were all the, the Gainim, the Tzadikim that lived at the time of the Beis Yosef, right after Rishonim ended. So this was the, this was the Dara Mavra, it was called. It was the transition between the Rishonim and the Achreinim. So the Maram Padova, Padova is in Italy. Italy was then the very, very big center of Jewish uh, Tyra, and Venice was a huge center of Tyra learning and yeshivas. Italy was the place at the time, and then it switched over to Poland and, and to Eastern Europe. But at the time, uh, Italy was, was, was one of the biggest places. And he was the Gadol Hadar, he was, had a big yeshiva, and it was a big Tamil Chachal, the Maram Padova. And this story took place uh, in the year 1550, and he was Nifter. Um, he was about he was about 68 at the time, so he was about 70 years old at this time. The Maran Padova was one of the senior, you know, that that time also 70 years old means you were the probably the older one of the older Tamid uh, of the generation, and uh, and and what happened was like this: he wanted to print a Rambam. The printing press wasn't was invented not that much earlier. I don't remember the day of the printing press invention, but it was in the 1500s. So this is uh, this is 1550. So it was not it was a pretty new innovation. And a couple of you didn't jump into the picture, and they started uh, figuring out how this works. But mostly, it was it was uh, controlled by non-Jews, the publishing. So in Italy, there were two non-Jewish publishers, and they they published everything that there was to be published, Jewish, non-Jewish. So he, the Maram Padova, was looking to to reprint the Rambam, and he invested a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money in fine in uh, being Magia the Rambam. So he went through very old manuscripts and old editions of the Rambam, and he found that he ironed out all the mistakes. And in addition, he also included Hagoyis. He had his own glosses, his own Hagoyis on the Rambam, which he put on the page. He printed on the page of his Rambam Hagoyis of Maram Padova, which was a big deal because again he was a Galadar, but was interested in seeing his Hagoyis on the Rambam. And there was a choice, he had a choice of two people who he could use, the two publishers, the two non-Jewish publishers in uh, Padua, or in Italy. One's name was, they're both noblemen, one, one, his name was Marc Antonio Giustinani, and the other one's name is, this is all written down, is the other, other, the other's name was Alvis Bragadin, right? So we'll call him Bragadin and Giustinani. 
So uh, he ultimately chose to use this fellow named Bragadin, and he pr- published his Rambam with this fellow Bragadin. This other nobleman, Justinani, was very angry at the fact that the Maram didn't use him, because first of all, the fact that the Maram used that other publisher wasn't just that obviously his Rambam would sell, but also uh, it was a big you know, uh, approbation for that publisher. The, the Maram was a Galadur, and he chose to do his thing with him. And this other gentleman, this Justinani, was in the process of printing a shas, which actually he did end up doing. Um, And he printed a very shas. It was the very first shas that was ever published with an Ein Mishpat and a Tarar. All those things were written by the Shulte HaGibayim, Shumi Baruch. And uh, he was the first shaft published with all those editions. So, um, so he, he was going to publish it. It didn't happen yet. It happened a little later. So he was also very invested in the Jewish market. So he was very angry at this, uh, his competitor, uh, Bragdanani. So what he, what he uh, decided to do is he printed a Rambam too. He published a Rambam also. And the Rambam he published, uh, he undercut the other gentleman. So he was selling it at below cost price. So he was selling it at a loss just for the sake of putting this other guy out of business. That's what he wanted to do. Um, and, uh, He's not a Jew, so he must the, have had some... He did, he did. Yeah, we'll get to that. There was, this, there was a fellow helping him. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about him in a minute. He did, yeah. He wasn't doing the, the work himself. He had Jews working for him. Uh, that that com- obviously complicated things as as they tend to. So this now the the ramification of this particular fight between these two publishers was extreme, and that's why I'm saying that like it's so hard to imagine that the intellectual property discussion uh, wasn't ever addressed earlier. Because what ended up happening was these two people fought about it, and there were two guys. They're fighting about it, and uh, they smeared each other. And then what they started doing is they started going to the po- the Christian leaders and saying, okay, that guy's publishing heresy. And then that guy's publishing heresy. And eventually what the Christians say, okay, it's all heresy. So they burnt everything. They burnt all, to all Gemaris, all Svarim in Italy. There was a public burning. That was the outcome of this, this, the, this, mach, this uh, fight. And, um, and the, for years, they only had riff. That's all they learned in Italy, because that was the only farm that they had left that for some reason were not, was not burned, because Riff was published separately in those days. Now, so this was one half of it. So one half is that the Maram invested a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of time in publishing his, in the Rambam, and then this person just came in and took, took away the publication. Now, the Maram was, the, the, the Rambam wasn't his. But what was interesting was that the, the second publisher, who, the competitor who was trying to undercut, took the Maram's Hagais and published it in his Rambam too. Now, how did he do that? He, he had a fellow, that his name was Yisrael Edelkind, uh, whose name, he got, went by the name Cornelio, went by his, his uh, English name, and um, he, he did this. And he was a, a, a real piece, like you would say. Uh, I mean, uh, as you, I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I'm just judging from what I'm reading. I mean, I shouldn't cast judgment on someone who lived uh, 500 years ago. But in any case, he writes, he has a big akdama to this other, this other edition of the Rambam. Um, and in it, you know, you have to remember, the Rambam was the God Hadar. And this was some fellow who worked in printing press. Right? And he writes in his hagdama how, uh, the hagdama to the Rambam, how, you know, a great, his publisher is, this guy, uh, Justinani, and he's doing it, he's selling it for very cheap because he saw the prices of the other Rambam are so expensive and no Jews would be able to afford it. So he's doing this just for the sake of Shema, so the Jews would be able to afford it buying a Rambam, etc., etc., etc. And then he writes, you know, and the other Rambam has the glosses of the Maram Padova, but he put it on the page, and I don't understand what kind of business it is. 
making glosses on the Rambam. I don't understand how we overlook what the Rambam said about people who don't know, understand how to learn Rambam. So we are printing it, but we printed it in the back. So he was like making these all kinds of snide comments about the Maram in the Haggadah, but obviously they were printing it with the glasses because they knew that's the reason why people are going to buy the Rambam because it had the Haggadah of the Maram Padavim. So, so uh, he prints it in the back, and it, all kinds of little, you know, shtachs in in his uh, in, in in his thing, and then he, he then he justifies his publication of the Rambam. So it turned out so two things happened. Number one, they took the intellectual property of the Maram. They took his glasses. And they printed it in the Rambam. And number two, they they went and they were they were uh, in other words, what the what the Maram had done was he had innovated a reprint of the Rambam. Right until then, everybody only had old prints of the Rambam, which were full of mistakes. And he innovated a reprint of the Rambam. So that was that was an innovation of his. And then they just copied that in order to undercut him. That was the, now this question was then sent to the Ramad. Now what I mean, the two guys. What are you going to do with two guys? Not much you can do to a guy, but what you could do is you could do talk to the Yidden, right? And you can stop the Yidden from buying. And uh, essentially, what ended up happening was that they made a cherem against anybody who would buy from the second guy, this Justinani, and they protected the Maram Padova. So, what the Rama came up with was an artificial way to create a patent law. What is right? Did he say it's us, sir? Well, I'll see in a second. Yeah, well, it's a long chuva. Well, we'll start seeing it in a minute. But this is how he did it. Words, what, what, he, what the Ramah was, was doing was creating an artificial patent law because they had no clout, obviously. They couldn't do anything to stop the Goyim from doing what they're doing. Uh, and they couldn't even stop the Yidden from doing what they're doing. The only way they could stop Yidden is by, uh, by, uh, by making this cherem. So the cherem was the lawsuit, so to speak. Right? That was the, the way you take someone to court to, to protect your patent. Now, Again, a little, another little piece of history here was how old was the Ramah when he wrote this tshuva? Now, the tshuva is dated in Shinyud, which is 1550. Now, um, the Ramah was Nifter in 1532, okay? So he was Nifter, he was Nifter 22 years later, right? 1572 is when he was Nifter. Now, we all, everybody knows when the Ramah was Nifter. That's no, there's no debate about that. He was Nifter in 1572. It was Lag Ba'imer, okay? It was the year Bays on Lag Ba'imer. That's for sure when he was Nifter. That's on his tombstone. No, there's no debate about that. And this is in the year Shin Yud, which is 22 years earlier. There is a question, though, how old was the Ramah when he died? Does anybody have, <coughs> have anybody ever heard how old the Ramah was when he died? Anybody? No. Some people say he was 33. Other people say he was 42. Now, if you say the Ramah was 33 when he died, so how old is when he wrote this tshuva? 11 or 10, right? So the Chida says, he says, look, you know, I'm sure he was brilliant, <laughs> but he's not making a cherem and uh, the sheikh is nachash and, and, and declaring when he's 10 years old. So this is a proof. This one, this, this tshuva is a proof that the Ramah was actually older. Not that he was all that old. He was 20, that, 10 years old, that's all. He was 20. That, that's certainly, not, he wasn't older than that. That's for sure. I thought he was born in 1529. What? So I thought he was born in 1529. Mm, he was born in 1529, and this is 1550. Yeah, so he was 20. Yeah, so he was 20, 2021. So that, he did become a Rav, but he was a fresh Rav. He had just become Rav. He was 20 years old. And the Gadol Hadar, who was, was related to him, the Maram Padova, who was 70 about, and it was world-renowned, renowned, uh, sent him this Shiloh. So he just, like, just to understand the, what, what happened over here. This was a big event, that he was asked to Shiloh, and he was given this Psaq, and so on and so forth. People didn't find that he was... No, he's related to him. Oh, 
Well, uh, again, it was the the the, the, the was the Gaim, so I don't know if it made even made a difference. But yeah. So now let's take a look at the Ramah, how the Ramah addresses the Shiloh. Again, he will not talk for, about the ownership of intellectual property, but he will talk about what is there in Tyra law to protect the patent. I'm sorry? The Maram had less clout because he was the um, no, I think what was important to the Maram Padova, the reason why he wanted the Ramah to Paskin was because the Maram Padova was in Italy, and the Ramah was in Poland, and he wanted this to be an international thing. So he wanted that, uh, in, that internationally uh, there will be a cherem preventing anybody from buying the other person's version of the Ramam. So he needed the Ramah for that. Um, he also, I, I think he knew who the Ramah was, you know. I mean, the Ramah didn't live that much longer, <laughs> and he made the Ramah, right? And it became the, 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 the you know, the, our, our source of halacha. Okay, so the Ramah is like this. The first thing the Ramah addresses is, does this, uh, does the guy actually have to care about what the Ramah is going to say? So, Garcina b'sin had in paragraph of Mises, Amr of Yehuda, Sheva Mitzvah, and Stava B'nai so he was the uh, so dinim is the general a general term for all financial halachas, right? So M. Cain, he goes on big arichas over here, a bunch of pages about the what exactly that means. Anyway, in the end, he comes out. That whenever you have a din taira and involves a guy, you have the right to expect the guy. At least, uh, you know, whether you can enforce it is a different question. But at least halachically, you, you can expect the guy to stick to whatever dinim Yisrael require. Because his dinim essentially are whatever dinim Yisrael. Now, this is very interesting, that itself. There's, there's, there's tons of things in this Shubhas Ramah that have a lot of ramifications. And this is one of them. So he, he says that when you're making, when, if a guy comes to a din tire, which happens, not an unusual thing, especially nowadays, that is arbitration and can be enforced. It happens. So when a guy comes to the entire, how do you pass in the, uh, for the guy? Do you pass in, does it, the, you bind the, the guy to Jewish law? So Ramah is saying, yes, a guy is bound by, by Shiva Mitzvah, he's bound to Jewish law. So whenever you have a dentira, you will uh, treat them as both as they're both uh, Jews. Let's talk about the story that's happening over here. Okay, so he he here writes the whole story. Um, we can skip. I just told you the whole story. So let's skip till. Um, he says he has four Yusaitis that he wants to to say. Okay, so it's the next paragraph. The first Pasha, a reason why, is You have a guy who lives in an alley and he set up a uh, mill. He's going to sell flour. And then someone else who lived in the same alley become like and he set up his mill across the street. A competitor, Dino So the first guy can stop the second guy, right? So this is Ravuna. Ravuna holds that uh, capitalism is, seems not to be so encouraged, and you can stop you know, a competitor if you set up the business first. You can stop a competitor from opening a competing business. Now the problem is we don't pass on the Ravuna. We don't pass on the Ravuna. We do. We pass in that capitalism reigns. And uh, you can uh, compete. And if you have a problem with that, 
So be competitive, you know, sell, uh, to do the, to price it better or offer something more. And that's what the Gemara's maskana. So the Muram, he, the Ramah addresses that, but he says that the halacha is, though, that if, if you, the second business destroys the first business, then you don't have this halacha. That's the, the Ramah, again, after Narichas comes out, that the, this halacha that we hold, that ca- capitalism is allowed, is only if the second business doesn't totally destroy the first business. But if the second business will destroy the first business, then it's not allowed. M. Cain needn't be done. In our case, Bari Azek, it's clear that he'll destroy him. Kiayen Tolaymer, that means, that I think, the nobleman. Hasheni, Nasan Lahakriz, Shekal Sefer, Yuzal, Yoizel Zohov Tuemeagain. He said that I'm going to sell my Sefer one whole Zohov less than the guy in Maram is selling his Sefer. And nobody will buy anymore from the Maram if it's so much cheaper by this other guy. And he's able to afford it because he's very wealthy. So his first argument to protect a patent is the halacha of Yerid Lom Nishaver. Yerid Lom Nishaver is a huge topic. Um, and he is making an, an argument that a patent has the right to be protected because of Yerid Lom Nishaver. So uh, just think of it in our terms for a minute. So it means like this. It means that uh, when, when, when a person starts a business... Um, and he invests a lot of money in, in setting up a business, and then someone comes and wants to compete, he's essentially saying that we protect the patent simply because the first person's business will be destroyed by you competing. Now, what, what he explains more, what he's going to say it in the next paragraph also, it means like this. The first guy, in order to make, uh, to, 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 print up this safer, had to invest a lot, a lot of money to make it happen, right? He had to invest money in the research, he had to re- re- invest money, etc. And if the second guy just copies him, and he doesn't have any of those expenses, so that is effectively destroying the first person, because the, fir- the second person doesn't have all the expenses, and he's able to sell it at whatever he wants. Now, the Ramah went and extended that to this case, where the second person was just undercutting for the sake of undercutting, and was just trying to put the first person out of business, and was able to do it because he happened to be wealthy. And the Ramah is saying that too has the protection of, uh, of Yerid Lom Nishaver, right? Which is interesting, which means, in other words, that... It has nothing to do with the fact that he took his... Uh, no, he doesn't even address that. Right? That's why it's interesting. No, he's not, and he's not going to address that. He's not going to address that. He's not, like, again, the Ramah, that's why it is a little bit uh, indicative that the Ramah wasn't really into that, the, 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 the actual theft of intellectual property. That didn't bother him so much. And all he was into was protection of business, which is essentially what a patent is, right? Protecting your business. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a very important point. Protecting the business only if the business will be destroyed, not if they will get, like, a dent in profit. That's correct. Right, that's also very significant difference. This, this halacha, the Hishdal Su, this, this Rabhuna only works if you're destroying the other guy's business. In other words, um, let's say uh, like this. Um, what? No, no, I mean, let's say the, the way this would apply nowadays would be like this. Uh, um, if, I, um, if I, in my basement, uh, no, I'll give you a better case. Um, the Shalom's uh, has their whole, right, their their, their grocery that they sell where they are, and um, if I were to buy Shomre, the whole building, and convert it to a supermarket, okay, and I would sell everything that Shalom's sells, plus a little bit of a, uh, at a little discount, okay, so there would be an argument that there is, uh, that that I'm destroying their business, why? First of all, uh, you don't have to drive all the way down to the other side of the parking lot, right, or first. 
and we have exactly everything that they have, plus we're at a discount. So there are situations where you can make an argument that the way your business is situated, where your business is situated, the way the community is, my business is effectively going to destroy your business. These cases, these lawsuits happen all the time. They're notoriously difficult to win. Uh, for example, we had one here. Um, it never actually became a dentire, but it was a discussion when the Shalom started selling candy. And when the candy man was next to, what, did we, what were they called again? Candy man? Candy man. I forgot already what it was called. <laughs> uh, well, candy man was right next door to Shalom's, and Shalom started selling candy. So they were wondering if that was a infringement of Yoyal Tekhom Neskaver. And what, you could make an argument that uh, Shalom selling candy essentially could put... Because everybody has to go to Shalom's anyway, right? So they'll just buy their candy there too. But it wasn't really true because they had a much different selection, they had a much different... they had a different product and they just felt that Shalom's was cutting into their profits because the sh- like those Shabbos trays you could just pick up in Shalom's, etc., etc. So it was, a, it was a discussion at the time, but again, like I said, these things are notoriously difficult to win. You have to really be able to demonstrate that they totally destroyed your business. They didn't buy them out. I thought they bought them out. Yeah, I think they bought them out. I don't think they put them out of business. Really? Yeah, I think they were working together for a while, even. Yeah. Was there? Uh-huh. Could be. So yeah. So these these kind of things these kind of things come up in every community. It, it happens. But again, they're, they're notoriously difficult to win. So it's interesting that the Rama is making that as an argument to protect the patent, because in, in his case, it's, it seems weaker. Okay, now let's see his second argument. The second argument, who different brought a shipment of dates, uh, no, figs, dried figs in a boat. So the Reish Kalusa told Rava, give him a fahar, literally, give him a fahar. It's all interesting Gemara there. And uh, see if he's a Tamil And if he is, Nekait Leshuka. Nekait Leshuka means that he has the rights to the market. No one else can sell figs today. Rav is a Tamil He gets first rights to sell figs today. But I feel that Noar Gabel Rashi Zalan Rashi makes things very clear. Could the Purusha Shemafarish Nakait Leshuka Hachreiz announced Shloimkar Adam Gregor's Beir Atshimku Ashulai. No one can sell figs until he sells out his whole stock. If so, Rav Namaram Padav is a Tamil Chacham. He has this this right of Nakait Leshuka, and he has the right to sell out his whole stock of Rambam before this other fellow can sell his. So yeah, so this is also a very interesting thing, right? Because here, in, in particular, it seems like a very, um, uh, it just seems a very hard argument to be able to win. Like, how, how would we make that argument nowadays? Think about it, right? Um, so let's say, uh, oh, you know where it happens a lot? A rub has an asterisk business, right? So can a rub say, no one else can sell a him until I sell out mine. And when I sell out my stock, then you can sell, right? So the Arabana wife said things like that. But, but that, that, that would, uh, as you can imagine, those are fighting words, right? That's not, that's, it's going to be very difficult for a Bezdin to uphold that because for a couple of things. First of all, uh, Talmud Chacham is a very fluid term nowadays, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, people are, I guess, you know, not clear exactly who he, who he identifies as Talmud Chacham, number one. And number two, we don't do this kind of thing anymore. These were maybe there was a time when that kind of practice, business practice, was observed, which means that a city had a shiva tuva they had 
uh, center of commerce, it was dictated by the Jews how and what and who will sell. That you see in halacha, that there were like these guilds, and you had, to, you had to stick to the rules of the guild. You wanted to sell leather, you had to stick to the leather working guild, and you can't, couldn't change their rules, you couldn't, break, you couldn't undercut, and so on and so forth. So in such a uh, setup, you can make sense that the, 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 you know, whoever's in charge can say, okay, today this Tamil Chacham gets to sell. But the Ramah was, this is international thing he's doing over here, right? He's not just saying it in the little city of Padova, this is what's going to happen. He's saying in Poland, this is what's going to happen. No one's going to buy... Uh, from this other fellow's printing. So, again, very interesting, but he, this is the second argument of the Ramah. Now, obviously, we can't apply this to patents, right? This is going to be very limited to this particular story of the Marah. Number three. Right? So, it's a mitzvah to buy from a Jew. Mitzvah to buy from... A Jew, excuse me. Also, big chiddush. The Ramah says you have to buy from the Maram because you're buying from a Jew. Now, you weren't buying from the Maram. He was not the publisher. The publisher was a guy. Uh, he would be affected because a part of the revenue would go to him. And this is a very big shayla, actually. Like this, when you go to Shalom's, right? So you can buy Glicks or you can buy ShopRite brand. Okay? And Glicks uh, cost a dollar more than ShopRite. Uh, do you say, Now, you're you buying from Shalom. Shalom is making money either way. But if you buy more Glicks, then they'll buy more Glicks. If you buy more ShopRite, they'll buy more ShopRite. Right? So, does the mitzvah of buying from a Yid apply to buying Jewish brands from a Jew so that the Jewish supplier will make more money? That's exactly what's going on here. The Maram was only going to get money secondhand, right? The money, well, the actual transaction was between the guy, the Maram wasn't the one selling the Ramams. The guy was selling the Ramams. He was the publisher. He was selling it. You bought it from the guy, and the Maram made money, whatever percent, whatever kind of deal they had. The Maram made, made, some, made some of the money and got some, back some of his investment. So it's just, uh, again, a chiddush. And uh, whenever this child is brought up, uh, people get very disturbed that the concept you have to buy a Jewish brand when it's a dollar more. <laughs> it is disturbing. Does that yeah. mean you have to have shalom to a giant? Does that mean you have to have shalom to a giant? Uh, that for sure. You have a for sure. Yeah, now if it's a significant difference, then, then you can make an argument that Kanamiyadam Misaka doesn't apply to Makam Hafsid. But 39 cents. I don't know. <laughs> I'm serious. Convenient? Well, these are all Khajbainas. I'm saying these are all Khajbainas of value, but it's a mitzvah. You have to realize it's a mitzvah. Kanamiyadam Misaka is a mitzvah. So, so, so it's very that we should talk about glitz, even if it's a dollar more. I'm not paskining right now. <laughs> I said, it makes people very uh, uneasy. And, uh, I, and, and it's not a very clear sugar. Well? Since my song's so expensive, they know that. Yeah, they know there's a mitzvah to buy from them, right? Who? Oh, that guy? He was just an employee. He was just an employee. Correct. He had no difference. Sales made no difference to him. Anyway. Okay. So there's the, that's, that's point number three. Now, point number four. You're not allowed to have a safer Torah that's in a muga in your house for more than 30 days. So basically what he was saying is, is that uh, Ramaz, I mean, the, the Maharam's version was muga, it was properly um, a, a done and no mistakes, versus the other guy's version did have a lot of mistakes, so you weren't allowed to buy it. Again, so three out of the four reasons are not applicable 
outside of this particular story. Only the first reason, which is highly debatable exactly how it even makes sense, is the only thing that can be applied to other patents and other concepts of, of intellectual property uh, to protect the person who's doing the business. Now, at the end of this, this paragraph, the Ramah then goes and says that he, there's no way he can enforce it, but instead what he's going to do, he's going to make a cherim, and he puts the date on it, and he says anybody who buys from that person is a cherim. Now, the Ramah, when he did this, he actually started a trend, because he was, as far as I understand, the first person to do this, which is to make a cherim, on anybody else publishing a book or a safer that you've published. So if I published a safer, I had the right then to go to a rav, which is then what became practice, common practice from that point and on. That anybody who published a safer went to a rav, they got askama, and the rav wrote in the askama that anybody who uh, competes and publishes this safer within, until this first person's stock is sold out is becherim. And that was the, basically the artificial way of them creating a patent law. Go ahead. So I just want to ask about that detail. You said until a stock is sold out, you're saying like the first printing run. So that became a, that became also a very big issue of contention. There was is it the first stock? Was it 25 years? Was it till he recouped his investments? Those were all very fuzzy, and became each one of those became a subsequent entire. Now, it is possible that maybe you know I was wondering before why was it that this was never addressed earlier? It could be that like the method there was no real good method for mass producing before the printing press. So like the, if any, if anybody if a cipher was nice enough to copy over your cipher, you're probably very happy about it because no, not so many people did it. Uh, still, it's hard to imagine that there weren't things that were were were, were eased, you know were able to be thought about. But that is a possibility that it was less. It was it was less. Uh, uh, less of an option. Art, 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 yeah, that's still harish should have been a thing. But okay. Also, the, the, there wasn't money to be made. I mean, like, so what if, like, the guy, you know, the violinist in whatever shtetl, you didn't his lose. song was like copied, like, okay. uh, there was no loss of money. There was no right. major loss worth uh, making it entire about. Possibly. And inventions, I guess, were very hard to patent to begin with. Uh, I guess, also, to some extent. Fine. That could be. So this is it. Mary everybody say 1550. This is the first foray into the parasha of intellectual property. Absolutely no mention of, of ownership of the fact of that you created something intellectual, some, not, nothing of that. The only argument is a, essentially a patent argument, which is you're invested money, you invested effort, you're entitled to see the product of your effort, and that person doesn't have a right to compete and put you out of business. Okay? So that's, that's the remark. Is, is it... Like, is he using anything other than, like, the good mitos to, like, back this? So, Yerdel is there's, there's two kinds of Yerdel Muschavera. Sometimes you're a Russia, and that's just a mitos thing, or whatever. A Russia is a Russia. Um, then there are certain kinds that are enforceable in Basin. Like I said, they're few and far in between, and very difficult to enforce in Basin. But the Ramah's argument is that this is one of the kinds of... of that is enforceable. So what, effectively, you're putting the other guy out of business or you're making him uh, impossible for him to make business is called which, like I said, in the Ramaz case, it's actually a chiddush. In, in a typical patent, it's probably simpler. That is true, right? If, um, if a, if a uh, drug company invests who knows how many millions of dollars to develop a drug and then immediately after they produce it, some guy knocks it off, so obviously they're going to go out of business. They're not going to be able to develop any new drugs. So there it's more pasha that, that it's, uh, it's, uh, they have the concept of Yerad Lomnus Chaveri, which is a typical case of Pat. Okay. The Muhammad is Shiloh? Yeah. reference anything about property? No. No, not as far as I know. Okay. Um, how many people have to have Maravia?
Uh, okay, fine. So let's, uh, let's go for another minute and then we'll stop. Now, the Chassam Seifer was writing, there was two chuvas that the Chassam Seifer writes about this, this topic. Again, the Chassam Seifer is very much focused on patenting, on um, this cherem. Um One was about a Seifer called Bar Uryon, and the other was about a Machser, actually. The Machser was uh, the, 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 the Redelheim Machser, which was like one of the, 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 like the father of all Machzairim. And it was, pro, it was produced by someone named Wolf Hildesheimer. Uh, if you ever pay attention to some of the notes on your Machser, uh, they have notes from someone, Reish Vav Hey, or Reish Vav Vav Hey. That's Wolf, Wolf Hildesheimer. He was like the, the father of all, he really went through the Machser, he fixed everything. And uh, he printed a master, and then immediately someone competed. Um, and he, again, he wanted to enforce a he wanted to enforce a cherem to prevent the other person from printing a master. And this became a machlokes between the, the Chasim Seifer and the Maram Benet, who lived at the same time, because the Maram Benet said, "Hey, a master is a master, right? You can't uh, you can't claim intellectual property on a master." And the Chasim Seifer goes. What's interesting about this chuva, the Chasim Seifer, is that he goes through like six or seven examples in history where this dintire was held and they always protected the publisher. So we don't have time to read it inside, but he quotes here, he says he doesn't understand why you're making a, a big, why aren't you willing to support this? He quotes, um, where are we over here? Let's see. Yeah, it's, it's bolded actually, you can take a look on the next page. He says, Mitamza Rambam, That's why the Ramah answered the Rambam of the second person. Uh, also presided over the entire like this. Mishpat for something. the also presided over the entire like this. Yosef. and he's just proving that this this was this minig was something that's already been instituted and been accepted. That you protect the publisher and you don't allow another publisher to compete, and you put anybody in cherem who who tries to override him. So that was basically, at this point, the way the Chassam Seifer says, he doesn't say that it's Yerod Lobos He has another chuva where he has a bigger richness where he goes through Yerod Lobos Is it applicable? Is it not applicable? But what he changes it into is that now it's Minik. And that's fascinating because what happened is, is now we've created a new artificial form of halacha, Minik Medina, which means that being that this, there must start of this, and now it became practice, that a Rabbanim issue a cherem in anybody in a publisher that they don't allow anybody else to publish, so it is automatically protected due to minig and it can be upheld due to minig. And that's such a fascinating concept. So in other words, what we have is is an area of halacha which actually doesn't really have a basis in halacha. Uh, we're going to see like next time we do, we that we address this, we're going to see about copyright whether you do own or you don't own it. They're not even handling that, and it is or handling your lumnus which as we said is very difficult to make it work in halacha. But instead, as a result of the case of the Maharam, where obviously, as you see, there were many other cheshbainis, which Ramah had, he instituted a new practice, the practice caught on, and then it became halacha. So it became the new constitution, you know, that uh, we now protect people that publish, and the reason was because you know, otherwise you would have nobody publishing. You know, if you had no protection, you would have no publish. It was necessary, but it became a halacha. It's just even an interesting... D- well, go ahead. Even if you're not your alumnus, you're not going to destroy him. Right. Well, the assumption was you will destroy him. Even if you won't destroy him totally, correct. The fact that you're just cutting into his business is already enough now to protect the patent. It turns into an, an authentic patent law. That's, what it, that's what's interesting about it. The last thing, you can take a look on your own, the last two things here is this true 
Ketubis Arash, which is a remark quotes it, fascinating thing. The Rush says that if someone owns Svarim and he doesn't want to share them, and that's the only Svarim in town, like he's the only copy of Rambam in town, you can force him to lend it out. You can force him to lend it out. A very interesting halacha. And this, just, this is just the Torah aspect of this discussion, which you, uh, you were asking about, like, uh, you know, vaccinations. Certain things, uh, are, are, we override intellectual property, or even real property in this case, simply for the service at Sibur. So this is, the, this is a marshal for that. Okay, we'll continue.